0: On the northwest coast of England, on the banks of the River Mersey just before it opens out to the sea, there's an unremarkable point on the map, a somewhere that could be anywhere. It was once just the grassy bank of a shallow estuary, but today it's a global crossroads where huge flows of power and money and data and energy converge and pause just for a moment before they travel onwards and outwards into the world. This is the Stanlow Oil Refinery. For a hundred years, its tanks and pipes and chimneys have functioned as a chemistry set for the industrial world, gulping down crude oil from the US, Norway and Russia, and transforming it into petrol, diesel, jet fuel, lubricants, and the raw materials for plastics, clothing, packaging and more. It's not just about the chemistry, but the inverse alchemy of commerce, turning black gold into power and influence. Attitudes towards that black gold have changed over the past few decades, but however much some want it gone, here it is, this refinery, chained to our industrial infrastructure, a concrete monument to Britain's deep connection to oil. If you want to understand how to move on from oil, this is a good place to start. So who owns it? What's it connected to? Who decides what happens to it and who benefits from it? How is it changing? And what's its future as we move towards a net-zero world? In this podcast series, we're going to find out. Welcome to Tides of Transformation, an oil story, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Helen cheriski a physicist, writer, and broadcaster. For most people, over the past few decades, the oil industry has operated in relative invisibility, Yes, we put petrol in our cars, buy plastic toys and tools and trinkets, fly on aircraft that burn hundreds of litres of jet fuel per hour, and we know the refinery chimneys as landmarks, but we never really question how it all works and why. But today, there are a lot of calls for the oil industry to change, and perhaps to just disappear. And what does that really mean? When you have an industry that's deeply woven into our communities, our economic policy, our energy use, and the structure of our country, any change for the better requires a deep interrogation of what it is we want to change. And that's what this podcast series is all about. Drawing on recent research undertaken with the support of the Economic and Social Research Council and with input from experts inside and outside the industry, we're going to be piecing together how the oil industry really works in order to examine how it needs to change. In this episode, we're going to be mapping out the problem And joining me to do that, I'm delighted to welcome our panellists for today. We have Gavin Bridge from the University of Durham and James Marriott of Platform London and co-author of Crude Britannia, How Oil Shaped a Nation. Gavin and James have spent the past four years researching the UK oil sector as part of a project called Fraying Ties. Also joining me is Jake Malloy, a former union organiser and ex-oil rig worker, and Colette Cohen, who's worked for a range of oil companies in senior roles before becoming Chief Executive Officer of the Net Zero Technology Company, a role from which she stood down earlier this year. So let's start by talking just a little bit more about the Stanlow Refinery we heard about at the start. Gavin, why have we started here? What does this refinery represent to you?
1: I think the Stanlow Refinery is a great place to begin. What it does is it draws our attention to the multiple points of oil in the UK. A lot of the current discussion is focused on the offshore, and the offshore is very important. But what we have here with Stanlow is a large industrial refinery and operating for a long period of time, and it's having to adjust to a set of changes.
0: And James, why do you think it's so important to look really deeply at the oil industry?
2: It's important because it not only moves us around, we, we use it, as you say, in our cars and our planes, but it also makes the culture in which we live. And Stanlow is a beautiful example of that. It's perhaps the only place in the world where there's a, a rock and roll a song, in fact, two songs made about it, Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark and Jizu have both made tracks called Stanlow. So it's built into our understanding of what the world is and how we look at the world and how we feel about ourselves.
0: Now, of course, society is more and more aware of the need for the oil industry to change, but huge industries don't change just because you ask them nicely. So let's hear from Gail Bradbrook who is an environmental activist and the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion.
3: The environmental movements focus on a number of actors, government actors, business actors, finances, insurers, oil and gas interests, and sometimes in public domains like in sporting events. And in each case, there will be a slightly different purpose to the sort of protests. And I have to say, of course, it's the ones where there's a public spectacle, that gets the most coverage. And so they are best placed for raising the alarm and pointing out the fact that we don't have a comprehensive plan to either mitigate or adapt to um, the changes that are here. And um, sometimes we will focus on banks, for example, I helped to uh, get something called money rebellion off the ground within Extinction Rebellion. And we focused on some of the finance system there's a focus on BlackRock and Vanguard uh there's a focus on um no new oil and gas treaties at a government level uh so you know sometimes we're trying to talk to the staff in a way in specific businesses and say where you're working uh and we understand people have mortgages to pay and bills to pay and mouths to feed etc where you're working is Contribution to the destruction of the planet, and that can
0: create sort of
3: internal backlashes.
0: So, Gavin, we heard one perspective on change in the sector there, but just could you set out the sort of major factors driving change in the UK oil sector, apart from Extinction Rebellion, perhaps?
1: Yes, we've been observing this sector for a while now, and our work understands the oil sector as really a, a, a set of interconnected spaces and institutions. And what's interesting, what we've just heard from Gail Bradbrook there is that this is an argument that social activists are making and demonstrating, identifying the connections through which oil is reproduced. And there's a a set of demands now from multiple quarters for oil to be different, to change in some way. That's expressed in a range of languages from a language of energy transition to just stopping oil to warnings about stranded assets uh, from the Bank of England. So across a range of institutions in society, we're identifying and seeing a set of demands and claims for oil to be otherwise.
0: Um, Jake, tell us a little bit about your perspective on what the oil industry has been for the UK and what it's become, because obviously your experience is sort of at the very practical end of all of this. So, so what do you see when it comes to where we've come from and what's happening now?
4: You know, when I, when I went. Into the oil industry, there was thousands of of miners being made redundant. It was effectively a transition, but it wasn't seen as a transition at that time. It's a political ideology more than anything. And going into the industry, we thought we were moving into a new industry, which was going to revolutionise things for the world, change the whole geopolitical Position for the UK, and we would all benefit the state, the benefit and the people of the state. Sadly, and there'll be people that have got different views, but sadly, I don't think it's delivered in terms of the benefits to society, and certainly not the UK society. And I think that's been realised now, as we we talk about the the ultimate decline and and cessation of of operations and and the use of of oil and gas. So I think there's, it's a big debate but for me I think we need to find a balance, we need to find an informed discussion or have an informed discussion because if we don't we we risk making the same mistakes again. In fact I think to some extent we're making the same mistakes again as we did back in the 80s and that's why We we need to engage with the wider public and and try and put pressure on the politicians to make this change, which will be a change which will last a lot longer than, than the oil and gas sector ever did. Make it work for society, make it work for the world, essentially.
0: We'll pick up on some of those points later. But first, I wanted to hear from Colette, just about your perspective on how much oil matters to the UK in particular. Like, why is it this country? You know, why is this a good place to discuss it? The reality is,
5: okay, both James and Gavin have kind of alluded to, it's endemic. It's how you live. It's how you travel. And I think maybe some stuff we need to talk about is at the moment, three quarters of the UK's primary energy needs are still met by fossil fuels. Over 90% of fuel for transport is still met eh, by fossil fuels. And gas is still key for heating and electricity. And I think that's why the UK is a very interesting country to have this conversation on because of the comments and intent we have laid out for transition and delivering net zero. We have been more vocal than many other countries. But if you look at the grid carbon intensifier right now, because it's, it's lies, 29% of our electricity has been generated by gas, 17% by nuclear, and maybe 12.5% by wind, today, as you and I are sitting here talking. So that says that even with all of these great commitments we've made to energy transition over the last 10 years, we are still as a nation, hugely dependent on fossil fuels. Where we should be having the conversation, where we should be focusing is, what are we doing to
0: identify how we replace oil and gas? Great. Well, let's, let's keep digging up. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to map out here, but let's get on to what the UK oil industry really is. So let's get down to some sort of fundamentals here. And to start with, we're going to hear from Martin Ratz, who's Morgan Stanley's global oil strategist, explaining to us how his job fits into the jigsaw of the UK oil sector.
6: The, the oil industry consists of a large number of parties that are effectively involved in making sure that not only do we have these commodities sort of at a global basis but, but that they're delivered at the right place in, in the right time and what a role like mine sort of brings to the oil market is that we are sort of a cog in the in the clock that is the oil market that sort of help the transparency and understanding of how the oil market works and if that system works well if the research analysts and the oil traders and the logistics companies and the storage companies, uh, sort of in the big consumers and the big producers all execute their functions sort of appropriately, then you do get you know, commodities like oil delivered in the right place in the right time. And so first, oil needs to be transported from the place where it's produced to a refinery. In some cases, refineries are close to where oil production is, but in some cases, refineries are close to where demand uh, actually takes place, and that can be far away from the point of production. So oil can be on the, can be what we call sort of on the water or in transport for quite some time. Then it, 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 it takes a while uh, for the refining process to take place. Once it's turned into the various products, then the products need to find their way uh, to customers. So again, gasoline and diesel is sort of shipped around in pipelines and tankers and trucks and, and what have you. So altogether, this is sort of quite a sort of sizable logistical journey. And there can be various forms of trading along the way.
0: Well, we heard uh, this presented as a logistical challenge. It's all about supply and demand. Jay, could you please just paint a picture for us of what the infrastructure of the oil industry is? You've obviously spent a career working in the... In the places where there are pipes and tankers and rigs and ships, for most of us that's quite invisible. Wait,
4: 1980? Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into and I landed on this monster the mini million-several platform. You should Google it and have a look at this monster. It was, at the time, the biggest concrete thing ever moved on the planet with a crew there that specialises in one specific role. And then you've got all the support team around that. You've got the process, the production guys you're making sure that the oil and gas is diverted into the specific areas in the pipeline to go on shore you've got a hotel catering shipping so you're a dock you're a poor you're a heli poor. i mean i ended up doing helicopter landing officer it was the strangest thing ever um and it's the coming together of multiple of different skills and professions which simply isn't mirrored any, in any other industry that they, you don't get this mix coming together in, in the way that you do in an offshore installation. You're drilling this stuff and then you're pumping this into a 30-inch pipeline and sending it ashore and then it's been pumped into the fineries like and then it's refined and put in the ships. You know, around the world, all the oil directly is put in the ships and it's taken to different refineries and then it's brought back again.
0: It is astonishing when you think about it that these monstrous pieces of of infrastructure you, that you described could be hidden almost. It's interesting, isn't it, that such big stuff could be effectively unseen. Um, Gavin, just, just to pick up on that, could you just tell us, give us the big picture on where, how UK oil fits in with global oil, and could you actually start by explaining the difference between upstream and downstream?
1: The distinction between upstream and downstream is a handy one. Crude on its own has relatively little utility. There's not a lot we can do with it unless it's refined. So the language of upstream typically refers to the process of hunting for, exploring for, and getting crude from the, under the ground, getting it, pumping it, bringing it to the surface and then moving it into the refineries. And everything from the far refinery out down is downstream, moving it into markets uh, as refined fuels. So the UK has been using oil on a large scale for over a century. Initially, that was as a lighting fuel, as kerosene, and then for motive power. And perhaps the big shift there was early in the 20th century with a conversion of the British Navy from coal, which the UK had a lot, to oil, which it didn't have any significant domestic resources of oil at that time. But what's interesting here, I think, is that the formative years of demand growth in the post-war years in the UK, oil really became embedded in our routines, the way we live, things like driving, the air travel, the jet age, the consumption of plastics. So just to give you one little stat, in the 25 years after the end of the Second World War, petroleum demand increased fourfold. The demand for diesel went up ninefold huge expansion in demand. But what's really key there is all of that, for those 25 years in the post-war period, was met by imports. Initially, by importing refined products from overseas refineries, like Shell's refinery at Curaçao, a small island off Venezuela, or from Anglo-Iranian BP's refinery in Abadan in Iran. A little later in the 50s, it became, the UK was still reliant on imports, but not of refined fuels, but of crude. So what you see in the 1950s is really significant investment. And this takes us back to our opening example of Stanlow in the building up of really large refining capacity in the UK. And it's only then in the 1970s, with the coming on stream of North Sea Oil, that we start to see the current oil economy of the offshore taking shape. So what you get in that historical perspective is you see the particularity of the current configuration of the UK, of being an oil producer. We're 50 years into that period. We've seen the peak 20 years or so ago, and the sector as a whole is changing quite significantly in that post-peak period.
0: Well, let's pick up on who all this matters to, because a lot of different uh, categories of people view the oil industry in different ways. Colette, something we haven't mentioned yet is governments and how governments see the oil industry, because of course, they care about the, what the population being able to do what it needs to do and the money. So just tell us a little bit about what the gov- what governments think about the oil industry. And historically, the UK government has seen the oil and gas
5: industry in particular as a cash star. It's provided over 300 billion in tax revenues in the last sort of 30, 40 years. And that's why you also talk about this windfall profits tax. Every time there's sort of the oil price increases, you see government trying to take more, take a larger share. One of my challenges... At the moment, for the UK government, is our approach to oil and gas has been punitive, has been because we're seen as sort of big oil or bad oil. Whatever there's been profits, it's been pushed to try and take more tax from them, rather so than the government saying we need to be part of this transition. So we need to take these profits and drive them into changing how we use oil and gas, changing how we do energy. And so I would like to see a more mature conversation by government rather than taking that tax, say, with that windfall profit, we want to invest in like a large wind farm. We want a solar field. So it's that element. government has that opportunity
0: to drive behaviors. I'd like to um, just finish off this point of the people that the oil industry matters to and how different stakeholders view it. And Jake, I wondered if you could just give us um, a quick overview of the communities that oil matters to. I mean, obviously, there's the, there's the UK community who uses petrol and plastic and all of this. But how about the communities that work in the oil industry? What, How big are they? What are they like?
4: The oil industry is out to virtually every region of the country. When you're on an installation offshore, you've got people from as far south as Isle of Wight um, and even beyond, and, and, and the European workers, to Shetland, you and there's different communities, predominantly North East, Central Belt, Glasgow, North East of England, Newcastle, Liverpool. Heavy your heavy industry has been, has been the source of, of employment offshore. But that filters out into every aspect of of society, whether it's hotels, bars, restaurants, um and we're seeing that in Aberdeen just now, the the impact, the 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 decline is it's having. And I think as I said earlier, I felt we're making the same mistakes as we did the transition um from coal. But back then it was the dash for the gas as they called it, and and the move just just to shut the pitch down as quickly as possible. And I collected made a an important point there about what the government's doing now, it's rather than enabling the change, enabling the, the transition, they're looking at it as the cash cow again. To enable something else, which is to underpin the chancellor's funds by tax, it's economic madness in terms of a transition. What's going on right now?
0: Okay, James, we've heard about a lot of stakeholders here. Have, have we missed out any? We've heard about the governments and the industry itself and the people working on it. Who else? What other stakeholders are, are involved here?
2: I think that I'd like to echo what Jake is saying here about the impact on householders, who, people who are living in, in fuel poverty. And I think if we look at the global and that specific local, you can understand a bit more about the different stakeholders. I'll take two aspects of that. First of all, those people all around the world who are radically impacted by climate change, those people who are in low-lying states in the Pacific, those people who are ha- having the massive impacts of floods in, say, Bangladesh, or desertification in parts of Africa. All of those people, they have a stake in the future of the UK oil industry because the UK oil industry impacts on their lives and their future, just as other parts of the global oil industry do too as well. So they are effectively stakeholders in that future. And on the other side of the global, BP and Shell, for example, they they extract oil and gas in the North Sea, but that extraction of oil and gas in the North Sea is a tiny part of their profits compared to the amount of profit that they make on oil trading. The the real core of the profitability of an oil corporation, such as BP, Shell, Exxon, or whatever, is oil trading. And that one of the key functions of the UK for the international oil companies is not pulling oil and gas out of the North Sea, but providing a place for oil trade. And that happens in the city of London. And that oil trade is a global concern. It's constantly... Active twenty-four odd seven, constantly moving between London, Singapore, Chicago, all the way around the uh, world, all the time. It has a node here, but that node is a global node, and the people who are part of that they have a stake in the UK as that part of that global node, and they have a, and they have a key stake in the future of the oil industry. What's interesting is that their stake, i.e., the ability to for the trade to reproduce profit is in counterpoint to the stake that the people in the low-lying states and Bangladesh and so on and so forth, who have a stake in the future, of the oil industry, that it should stop destroying their livelihoods and their communities. And those two aspects of the global are existing, coexisting here in the UK. And that's part of this battle.
0: Well, we can already see there are a lot of complications here. But let's hear, let's take one of the, the sort of simpler aspects of this which is the difference between upstream and downstream and we're going to hear from dr andy roberts who's the director of downstream policy at the uk petroleum industry association he's going to tell us how separate the downstream oil sector is from the upstream in the uk and i think he might use an acronym UKCS, and if that stands for uk continental shelf
7: energy security to the uk government tends to mean um Upstream, But crude oil isn't of much use at all when it comes to servicing product demand. And we feel that it's critically important that we have a domestic refining sector. There is no other country with supply and demand at the same level as you find in the UK that is dependent on imports. Imports are important. The UK became a net importer in 2013. But, you know, in terms of dependence on UKCS, we're not that dependent on UKCS. UK crude now represents only 20% or less of the crude slate for the six UK refineries. Well, I think going forward, crude is much more widely traded than finished product. The crude trading market is about three times that of finished petroleum products and with an abundance in crude, we probably have got more than we perhaps need going going forwards. Crude producers will always try to find a home for their, their their product. So I don't feel that we have a significant dependence on UKCS.
0: So Gavin, I think a lot of people would be surprised that the oil that comes out of the North Sea is not that's not the dominant thing that goes into our cars and our own jets in the UK. Why are these two things so separate? Why is things come out of the North Sea and they go somewhere and then things come into refineries and may get used in the UK? Why is it not all the same oil? Why are we not kind of self-sufficient?
1: Yeah, this is a a, a bit of a a puzzle, isn't it, really? Um, So we have really here two parallel systems. We've got offshore oil production and around four-fifths of that is exported. Doesn't come ashore, doesn't touch the shores of the UK, goes straight into international markets. And then what we have is an onshore oil refining sector that's fed mainly by imported crude. So let let me just put a a few numbers on this because it does help explain it. Um, So if you take annual production of the UK oil and gas, that's around 80 million tonnes of oil equivalent. Around half of that is oil. So let's say 40 million tonnes a year of oil. Uh, and, and of that 40 million tons, about 30 million of it is exported, right? So all of that goes into, in, that, that 30 million goes into international markets. Now, at the same time as that's happening, offshore production being sold into international markets, the UK is importing around 40 million tons of crude a year into its refineries, refineries. Most of that at the moment is coming from Norway and the US. And it's also importing around 30 million tons of refined products. So that's diesel and jet fuel. And that's coming from refineries in the Netherlands, in Belgium, but also from Saudi Arabia and from Kuwait, from the US and from India. So the reason for this parallel system, there's there's three things to say here. The first is really to do with the quality of the oil. So the first thing is about the nature of that crude. It can attract a price premium. And so it is sold into those markets where it's demanded. The second feature is actually the the nature of UK refineries, and this is partly a legacy of building refineries from that period in the nineteen fifties. Is that the UK refineries are typically hungry for heavier fractions? They want what are called uh, well, they want to produce what are called the middle distillates, uh, so things like diesel and kerosene. So the UK refineries typically overproduce petrol, and most of that's exported, and they underproduce diesel and jet fuel, which needs to be imported. So. Three quarters of the jet fuel that's used in the UK is imported at around about half of diesel. And I guess the third feature that explains this really limited connection, the surprisingly limited connection between offshore extraction, upstream and downstream consumption onshore is to do with the seaborne nature of most of US, uh, UK crude oil. It's on a ship and a ship is flexible. It can go into any market. It doesn't rely on the fixed nature of a pipeline.
5: We're talking a lot about oil, but I think it is worth mentioning that I think it's actually 80% of UK gas produced, but it meets 44% of the UK gas demand. So we talk a lot about oil, but the reality is that everybody and many people that will be listening to this,
0: they're heating their houses with gas. Thanks for that clarification. James, very quickly, could you just say, we've been, we're talking about the flows of hydrocarbons here, oil, and Colette was just talking about gas. How about flows of information and money and power and things like that how do those flow around the uk and i know that's a massive question it's mean to ask you to deal with that briefly but i'm sure you can do it
2: the simplest one to talk about is power the social power of oil it's often said and then and the 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 prime minister as rishi sunak recently said you know we need to produce homegrown oil for um homegrown refineries and homegrown uh sale in our cars well as as gavin's um uh data shows us that that's actually kind of a nonsense, really. It doesn't work like that as simply as that. But what's interesting about Mr. Sunak's statement is it shows how in the public imagination, the the political power of oil, the government wants to say, we're going to grab hold of our oil and we're going to make it ours. And it's very important to us. And In a way that they say that, they wouldn't say that in the same way about uh, money, for example. You understand that money is a global global, uh, uh, product. We wouldn't have homegrown money sold at homegrown banks and used in our own kitchens. It doesn't exist in that way. We don't think about money in that way. Oil has this image that it's something to do with our nation, which is a long history of that. And as a result, it has a social and political power. The oil companies themselves are very happy to, for that to be the case. There's a lot of money and effort is spent building that social and political power. That's not only through the net of influence and supporting and engaging with governments and work, working with government ministries and so on, but also building what's known as the social license to operate, the, the, the public perception that the oil companies are central to um, the, the, the UK's economy. So, for example, that's in sponsorship, in sponsorship of sports, in sponsorship of arts, sponsorship of of culture and education, to such a degree that that uh, yeah. until recently, in, in the last decade or so, pretty much every major cultural institution in the UK was 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 sponsored by BP or Shell. Now that's not the case because of a of a, a pushback of, by civil society and campaigners against that. But what it shows is. There's a struggle over this social power, this political power of the oil companies, uh, which is quite distinct. You know, is a separate thing from actually just how much oil is coming into the economy and pushing our cars around, and 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 uh, and where that oil comes from, as Gavin points out.
0: I'd like to move on to just thinking about in in a broad way change, and we can see already. We can see there's all these complications. There's all these interwoven things. Changing all of this is going to be hard. But I wanted to pick up on some specific points with each of you. And, and Jake, I wanted to, to start with you. You described your concerns about this being a, a botched transition as far as the workforce is concerned. We hear a lot that, oh, there'll be all these new jobs in wind farms and, you know, there's, we need to build all this stuff. There's going to be all these jobs. And there's, there were oil workers who were doing something. So now they can just move into these new jobs. Is it as simple as that?
4: I wish it were. Um... The fact is it's it's not and you know, there's been various discussions at at every level about how we transition this workforce from the training needs, the the skills that are going to be required. All of that for for me is is noise because the, the reality is we're doing very little at this minute in time in terms of manufacturing or the groundwork that needs to be done. To enable us to do the transition you know everything from upgrading the, the grid to take the electricity that we're going to be producing the storage capacity to use to store electricity that's unused you know all of these things are being brushed over and not all, all the focus is about how many thousands of jobs it's going to be there's not going to be any thousands of jobs unless we get a grip on the whole manufacturing piece and i would suggest take some direct control, direct influence. You, know, if you If you consider the fact that 50% of the, the renewable energy being produced from wind turbines currently is owned and operated by state-owned companies, for the, for the most part Norway and Denmark, but you've got the Irish, the Germans, the French, the Chinese even are involved there. The only state that isn't involved is the UK state. We're still leaving it to the markets, just as we did with the oil and gas at the start. And I think that is absolutely critical in order to change the way we do it. Because if we don't change, then the prospect for the oil and gas workforce as a whole will be lost.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. On the question of change, Colette, I wondered, I'm curious about incentives. And oil companies being incentivized to change. What are the right incentives to make this transition? Well, actually, to build on what Jake has said, it's more the
5: certainty. The industry and the supply chain have been keen to start this journey. Many of the companies even make big statements, particularly before COP26. We were primed as a country to move in. The Net Zero Technology Centre had done a series of studies We all showed the faster. We moved into this transition, the more jobs there would be, the greater economic value the UK would realise. This was all shared with the government. What we needed at that point was certainty on numbers of, or access to the grid, as Jake has already mentioned, but also determining what we as a nation were going to do. Were we going to introduce hydrogen into our gas lines? Were we going to use geothermal? What kind of a, a country wanted going forward? If we don't have that certainty, it's virtually impossible for companies to invest in. We're talking about incentivization, but actually shared risk is the bigger one. Again, going back to Jake's comments on other countries are going in with the government stake. The government stake is a shared risk element. So I think we don't necessarily have to incentivize, but we have to rather share the risk and deliver certainty of what we're trying to do. Currently, even if you look at the, particularly the clutching wind aim, and licenses that were issued. The first fields don't come in really until 29, 30, 31, 32. If you're sitting here as a small supplier today, you can't invest in capability or skills in 2023 when you're not gonna get money back until 28, 29, you're too small. So
0: we need to start driving delivery of those new fields. Gavin and James, I just wanted your perspective on, are things really changing? Or is it is there just a lot of talk about change and it's not happening yet?
1: Yeah, so in, in our conversation here, we've been exploring oil as a set of connections, the offshore, the refineries, trading and finance. And I think the benefit of thinking of it in that way is we can identify that each of those sectors is moving at different speeds. Uh, so, and, and if you recognise those moving at different speeds, it does raise questions about future scenarios for the UK. So... You can imagine a scenario, for example, in which offshore extraction comes to an end, the 50, 60 years or so of of extraction closes down, but yet the UK is still central to an international oil economy based on its role in trading and finance and indeed in selling oil and gas services overseas for extraction and and
2: refining operations elsewhere.
0: Great, and any last brief comments on change and whether it's happening and and what it looks like?
2: Yes, I think things are changing. I think what Gavin talked, Uh, sorry, what um, Jake mentioned there about ownership, And, and indeed, Colette, you referred to it too, I think is a key thing. We are building a new wind world. We're building a world of renewables. It's happening at a remarkable pace. The question is who controls that world and therefore who determines that pace? I think Colette's very right when she says about the pace in which the North Sea was developed, but it's worthwhile remembering that in the 60s and 70s, It was effectively state-owned by the British state. They owned 68% of BP. They also had Brit oil. And they had a very powerful impact and sway over Shell. Only in the 80s did it become effectively a private market concern. And I think that we need, once again, to have the role of the public, whether that's in the form of local communities, local authorities, or the government as a whole, to take a role in developing the wind future. And make it a common wealth of wind, a wealth which is shared wealth rather than a private wealth of wind. And democratise that and take ownership of this future and move it at pace, because only that way will it move at pace. When we when it's left to the, the vagaries of this government moving in this direction or that government moving in this direction, it's just it's a nonsense. We're just gonna be going round and round in circles, and we need to move at pace and make it a commonwealth of wind.
0: Well, we can see that there is a lot to talk about here, and uh, that's why this is a podcast series and not a single podcast. If we want to move into this future uh, in a constructive way, we're gonna really need to face up to these complexities. So we will be digging it further into the specific issues raised here in the rest of this series. So do join us for our next episode uh, in which we'll be talking about who owns the oil industry, how that's changed and how the UK differs from other countries in this respect. So don't miss out on that. This was Tides of Transformation, an oil story. It was produced and edited by Isabella Soames.